Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for the fourth episode of our April Mental Health Book Club on Jamel Hill's memoir, Uphill. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing chapters 15 through the end of the book. So if you're following along, make sure to uh, have read that before listening to this episode. Uh, but to get started, uh, I wanted to share some feedback that I've actually gotten from episode three. So in, uh, if you've listened to the last episode, we talked about uh, Jamel's experiences with like advocating for her salary, which kind of ties into some things that she shared earlier in the book about, you know, just being a person of color and navigating things with money, especially if you came from a place where you don't. Uh, didn't grow up with a lot of money. And so I think a lot of us had shared experiences about advocating for ourselves uh, in either corporate spaces or, you know, um, in our different walks of life and stuff like that, and how money tends to be a very taboo thing. Uh, I got a few emails from people because I send the episode out on my newsletter, which if you wanted to sign up for my newsletter, the link is in this episode show notes. But the uh, some of the responses, people were like, I'm so glad that y'all were talking about money and salary and people were sharing their stories about how, you know, they've always felt really uncomfortable about, you know, raising their prices or talking to somebody and saying like, hey, I need to get paid more. I had one person um, talking to me today about how, you know, they're a teenager and they were advocating because, you know, supply and demand is very uh, interesting right now. So most everywhere you go, the staff will say, oh, be patient with us. We're short staffed, right? And so even the teenagers are getting, uh, becoming aware of the fact that these companies need them more than they need the job, right? Um, and so there was one uh, story of a teenager who said, yeah, I, I went to another uh, job and they were going to offer me, you know, two, three dollars more an hour. And I went back to the job I already have. And I said, hey, you're going to either pay me more or I'm going to go to this other place. And, you know, they advocated for themselves. So I thought it was really cool that people resonated with that conversation that we had. Uh, and I just wanted to start by sharing that with you all. So thank you for what you contributed there. But to jump in, like we always do, what are our initial kind of reactions to this final section of the book? Can I just say I'm disappointed? She never really talked about therapy. Like, where was the full circle moment? Like, I spent the whole book like, okay, she's going to get to it. And it just never happened. It's kind of interesting because in the beginning of the book, she talks about, I went to therapy on a dare. And then she went into the, the controversy about Trump, which was the introduction to the book. And then she revisits the situation about the tweets about Trump at the end of the book. And that would have been a great way, almost like, you started the book this way, you ended the book this way, but missed opportunities. Uh, one of our uh, participants last week, uh, Angela, had said that uh, she feels like the editor of this book did not do it justice. So it seems like there was probably way more to this book and a lot got chopped. It, it is unfortunate. So thank you for that that observation because I felt the same way. I got I think get through all of the chapters. I think I have maybe like two more left, but I'm also disappointed that she didn't mention anything um about therapy either because i'm i'm wondering if she went back 
is she in therapy now? In what ways has it helped her, especially relating to um, like her childhood and a lot of the trauma that she went through there? So also disappointing. Nita had shared the link to the Red Table Talk that Jamel and her mom did with Jada and uh, Gammy and uh, Willow on the Red Table Talk. And surprisingly, so I watched that uh, and I did link it in episode three. If uh, you're listening to this episode and you want to go back and watch that, she talks about therapy. She talks about mental health. She talks about addiction and the impact that it had on their relationship. And I'm like, where the fuck was this in the book? That would have been great. That would have been a whole chapter that you could have put in the book. But it seems like a missed opportunity. But she freely talked about it on the Red Table Talks. But not everybody is going on Facebook Watch to see that, you know. And so uh, I got the information about the mental health and the relationship and kind of the, even the closure uh, or not. Because, so, you know, we're reading a book. So we literally close the book at the end. But we kind of want to just know that everyone's okay. I got that from watching the Red Table Talks, but I didn't really get it from this book because, and I think Jamel mentions it throughout, but her default is to go to the sports stuff because that's what she knows. But it's almost like she'll touch on something that's sensitive and then you get an entire chapter of the nuances of the different shows and the the executives and the what was going on in sports at the time. It's like, she'll go real in depth to that. And I'm like, it almost feels like, and I'm not a sports person. So it could just be my interpretation of this is a lot of sports content right now. But I feel like it almost distracts from her personal narrative, which underneath uphill, it says a memoir. Yes, all these sports things have been defining to your career. But I feel like she sometimes goes off uh, topic a little bit and doesn't really go into those things, which we tend to expect from a memoir. Um, so that's my take on that part. This section, this final section, I would say that for the most part, it's really getting into the last days of her time at ESPN and the office politics, corporate America, ongoing racism, this is kind of a continuation of things that we've talked about in the past. And then we get into her departure from uh, ESPN. Jumping in, uh, there was something that resonated with me. So on page 180, uh, quote, when I got the seven-figure signing bonus that came with my new contract with ESPN, the first thing I thought about was buying my mother a car. I wanted her to have the experience of receiving something luxurious that didn't come with any strings attached, that wasn't bought by some man who had his own agenda. I wanted her to have something that was just for her that no one could take away, end quote. And um, for context, she had shared a story about a man that her mom had started dating who seemed to have a lot of money and basically told her mom, hey, I'm going to buy you a brand new BMW, like took her down to the dealership, had her pick out the car she wanted. Then he just vanished and disappeared. And then meanwhile, the dealership's like calling her mom and Jamel and her mom are just sitting there confused. Like, I thought we were getting a new car, you know, but when she got her, you know, big paycheck from her, you know, this job, she wanted to have her mom have that experience of getting a brand new car. And I thought that was a good moment. Because, uh, again, in the last episode, we were all kind of hoping that we get some like, some more updates on the relationship with mom, because it started out so rocky. And even in the Red Table Talks, uh, you almost like, it, as Jamel is like, explaining, like, 
hey, I'm not angry, I'm not bitter, but like everything in her body language would you would almost think otherwise. Um, and even her mom is looking at her. She's like, I don't believe you. I really do think that you're bitter and that you have something against me, you know? So I, it, there's not closure on how her and her mom are doing, which because she took us so far into it uh, in the beginning, it just feels a little disappointing that we didn't get, you know, some sort of like resolution to that. But in this context, she got her mom a brand new car. And I thought that was a beautiful moment. It reminds so in my own life, my grandmother, I consider her like a mom, you know, she pretty much raised me. And I always said when I was younger, you know, I, I really love my grandma. And she's still my closest family member to this day. I always told her when I was younger, I was like, well, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to get a good job. And when you're old, I'm going to take care of you. That was just like something I said when I was younger. But like, as I, you know, went to college, got jobs and, you know, started to build a career for myself, I actually like do that. Like I, you know, help pay her living expenses. And earlier this year, she's over 80 now. I can't remember how old she is. She'd be uh, 81. She'll be 81 this year, I think. Um, and she's a terrible driver. Also, the pandemic didn't help. So uh, she didn't drive that much. And so she's very rusty. And so I got more and more concerned. I was like, I at least need to get her a car that has a backup camera, you know? And so in, I want to say it was February sometime, I went and bought her a brand new car and surprised her with it. Um, and it was not a Mercedes, uh, like uh, what Jamel got her, her mom, but it was a new car. It had the backup camera. It, you know, it suited my grandma very well. Um, and there's that, that when I read the part about her getting her mom the car, and, you know, kind of fulfilling like a childhood promise to, you know, make sure that her mom can have what she needs. That reminded me of the experience of, you know, when I was younger, I was like, Grandma, I'm going to take care of you someday. And then like being able to make it to a place in my own career where I can actually make good on that uh, childhood promise in a way, it feels really good. So that resonated personally with me. Do y'all have any like anything to say about that particular uh, example of, you know, Jamel buying her mom the new car? or any uh, anything uh, in this section that kind of stuck out to you or felt good? I had the, uh, well, a couple of quotes, like, earmarked um, around that story, but I like at the end how she said, finally, I made up for interrupting that night. She had boardwalk and park play. I thought that was really cute. Um, going back to the beginning of the story, when her mom was kicking everybody's ass in Monopoly, and then, her water breaks and she didn't get to finish the game. I thought that was funny. I like that too. And that right there, that example and that line, that was a great example of bridging the beginning of the book with the end of the book, right? So while we feel like some some things were left out and left open-ended or ending abruptly, that was a good tie-in from the beginning of the book to the end because Jamel came into the, the world during, uh, you know, a monopoly game um and it was a very like heated game where her mom had gotten those two very expensive you know pieces on the board and she couldn't finish the game but she would have you know she would have you know wiped the floor with them so i thought that was i i, I really loved that line like i i read it over a couple of times and i that was a really good uh, that was a great feel-good moment as well all right so let's get into some of this bullshit with espn so we started off with the, uh, okay, Jamel 
gets her job. She buys her mom the car. She's making good money. This is kind of where her career has been leading up to. And then as soon as she gets the job, people are telling her, watch out that you don't let the money change you. Don't let ESPN change you. So, quote, everyone was asking the same question. Are you sure they're going to let you be you? Constantly hearing all of this made me nervous. We had no reason to believe that management didn't intend to let us be ourselves. But when that many people tell you the same thing and ask the same question, it's not a good sign. They clearly knew something that we didn't. And it wasn't long before I started to understand why they gave us those warning signals, end quote. What are y'all's thoughts on that? Getting a corporate job or getting the, quote, dream job or dream opportunity and then having to wrestle with whether or not that opportunity is going to change you as a person. So, oddly enough, my I thought my dream job was working at ESPN. It was my first job out of college. Um, I left ESPN hating sports. I didn't watch sports for another, like, year after I left. Before that, I watched them every day, all types of stuff. Um, so working there, it takes a lot out of you that you don't necessarily understand while you're in the moment, how bad it was. Um, and definitely a lot of the examples she gave of how they treated black people, especially black women, it's very true. Um, it is such a double standard in there and it's like uh, a very fraternity type culture where you'll have the frat boys say whatever they want. There'll be no repercussions. Um, if you voice concerns to upper management, they sweep it under the table. They're just like, this is just the environment we're in. Um, and I'm not going to say it was all bad. I met some amazing people. Like she talks about a young lady named Talia. We started the same day. Me and her hung out every day I was at ESPN. So she's an awesome person. So I was glad that she started to get promoted because it's what she really wanted to do. But me, I was just like, I don't want to sit here and hate going to work every day and hate sports just because I work here. It wasn't worth it for me. So I definitely understand what Jamil is talking about. Um, and I think a lot of times people on the outside don't really realize how bad it can be when you get what you think you want when you actually get it. Um, I had a manager there, another black lady that told me, she he literally asked me one day, do you have a drug problem? because I have some slight speech issues. I'm sure people have noticed by now. And uh, my hands shake a little bit. So I've had speech problems since I was a little kid. And it, it's something that I always have in the back of my mind. For so for a manager to say that just kind of really pissed me off. So that was one of the reasons I left. That's a really fucked up thing to ask somebody, you know, especially given, I think, increased awareness of, you know, various like, things that people could be dealing with to to ask somebody that i i would i would definitely feel some kind of way and if you look in the the chat there um there's definitely some some validation there as well yeah i i think as we go through this this section though jamel and her partner definitely dealt with a lot of kind of like what are we dealing with is because it started off with don't let it change you are you sure they're going to let you be you and then it obviously snowballs and spirals to a very toxic place. Um, I think this is also why, one of the things that's contributing to switching culture, um, especially for generations. 
So I am preparing to leave my job now, which I thought was a dream job. And I'm a DEI consultant. I do love all those things. Um, but I think this is also speaks to the importance of camaraderie and advocacy and having having your group and your circle because you start to think I or at least for me, I shouldn't speak so generally. Um this has happened to me in a few different roles. And the question that I really come back to is at what cost? Like I can keep pushing something, but at what cost? And if it, if it burns my flame to the point where it burns me out, maybe it's time to make a switch. It doesn't mean that I don't care about the work or the value or find it worthwhile, but knowing my capacity as a human is hard. And so that's kind of my thing for myself is I have drawn a hard line of there are certain things I will put up with. There are certain things I will not. But at the end of the day, every decision that I make is one that I have to live with. And I've never made a decision that I can't live with, even though I've been put in positions where I've been asked to. And that's when I know it's time to move. However, that has been balanced with the idea of picking my battles. There are certain things that really upset me, especially on a DEI focus daily, but I can't let those distract me from something else that I'm working on. And so it can feel very dirty because it's not that I'm turning a blind eye. I acknowledge it. I see it. Something is not okay. But I realize that the capacity, I can clean up mess A or I can clean up mess B. And mess B, I try to think about what's going to make the impact. But that, that's that been a big decision for me is balancing at what cost with what's in my control. And then knowing when when that balance feels too out of whack, it, it's time to move on. But I've never been offered a job with a seven-figure signing bonus. So, um, you know, that might be small potatoes. But I think in my experiences of working at agencies and stuff like that, as a person, especially who is very young in my field, I'm seeing money, salary amounts that are easily double, triple, quadruple what, you know, my single parent made growing up, you know, and it's like, it's like, uh, I need to survive, I have to pay these student loans and stuff like that. Um, but like, Jamel, I always had the internal understanding that integrity and like doing the right thing and also being able to sleep at night was more important. And there were many, many instances where I flat out said, I'm not putting my name on that. I'm not signing that. I'm not doing that because it's fraud, because it's unethical, because it's against the regulations, right? In part, because I spent a lot of money on my degree and to get to, you know, towards licensure, I was not letting money or what someone was trying to pressure me into doing get in the way of the trajectory that I was on. But there's definitely strings attached and there's pressure and you kind of have to choose between am I going to stick with what I know is what is right or possibly, you know, bend your beliefs and uh, get yourself in whatever those consequences might be. So uh, she shared several examples of that here, but I want to jump into an example of 
kind of how the culture at ESPN, um, especially around matters of race, uh, Nita had shared uh, last time about basically those memos that were going out, which were not so subtly saying like, y'all are too black, you need to calm down kind of thing. So quote, ESPN can be a difficult environment for anybody as it simultaneously breeds competitiveness and ruthlessness. Unfortunately, what happened to Amina had also happened to far too many Black people who worked at ESPN, especially Black women, many of whom felt undervalued, ignored, disrespected, and belittled. And then she goes on to say, in 2020 and 2021, ESPN was among many companies that faced scrutiny and criticism for the company's racial climate as this country supposedly underwent a racial reckoning. She put that in quotation marks. That was ignited by an abundance of high-profile tragic murders that, again, pinpointed the ongoing fear of Black existence, end quote. So what are y'all's thoughts on that? Um, Part of it, I don't know if it's necessarily specific to ESPN, but overall as a whole, uh, I know I've heard since I was a little that as a Black woman, you have to work a lot harder than everybody else to get respect, to get equal equal play if that's even a thing because we know we're not getting paid equal to our counterparts of other races sometimes and it's frustrating because even as you do all the things they tell you to do you go get a college degree do all this stuff you have all these respectability politics sometimes it's still not enough to even be considered for promotions seriously like everybody else that's so frustrating and i agree with you nita um I feel like that's every little black kid's rite of passage is getting that speech. Like you have to be two times as good in order to be seen as equal. And you saw that as a theme throughout the book. But when she talked about, like, I think it was a production coordinator or someone that they were trying to get involved in their new show and how she just kept continuously kept getting passed up for the promotion um, and it wasn't until she left in like 2021 that, you know, she probably got a better deal at a better at another company outside of ESPN because they weren't recognizing her, her work as, a, as an employee and also a black woman. I was actually a guest on someone else's podcast last night, and it was like a panel of so the two hosts are um, two black women. Uh, she had a panel of basically questions for a panel of men, right? So uh, it was uh, tw- uh, someone in their 20s. I was the person in my 30s. There was someone in their 40s and there was someone in their 50s, right? So it's kind of like getting perspectives of men across generations. And one of the questions, I can't remember specifically what it was, was is like, what is the the status or the um, value of a Black man in today's society. Um, And it was interesting as a guest, you know, someone who's like chiming in on the conversation to see the spectrum of how different people felt. I kind of, I I felt like I was on the other side of the spectrum with some of the responses that people were given, but there was a lot, there was a strong uh, belief in respectability politics. So it was almost like, you know, I had mentioned in a previous response, something about how I, as a Black man, feel more afraid at 30 than I ever did 
as a teenager because of what I see happening and what I see the um, the polarizing of, you know, just people's ideals and politics. And it's the politics of somebody is not even that important to me, but how politics has then gone into beliefs about values and types of people and stuff like that. And I know Brianna uh, had mentioned the thing about switching and stuff like that, you know. And so I had mentioned the, you know, just feeling like very afraid and how the value of my existence is, it, it seems to, as a, as a person of color, it seems to be the the marker keeps moving further and further away, um, which if we would think of progress, it should be getting easier to attain. Um, despite the fact that everyone in here is a uh, at least master's degree educated, you know, um, professional, right? Like we are feeling these things in our careers. So one of the things I called out um, and disagreed with the the panel on is they were all talking about respectability politics and I called them out on it. I said, respectability politics still don't stop me from being in danger because the degree the career, the um, income, all of that stuff was in place when my life was threatened by a law enforcement officer. When I'm looked at a certain kind of way because I drive a certain kind of car, you know, those things are still happening to me despite having the respect, the, 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 the checkbox of respectability. So I was a little contrary to what most of the people were saying, but it was a good conversation. Uh, but I share that to, I guess, validate and kind of piggyback off of what y'all were sharing. Did that make sense? Good. Okay. So continuing on that, what I just shared, the quote that I just shared, um, there are numerous more examples, but on page 188 to 189, the way it was written was so incredibly concise that I try to like highlight and like keep myself from highlighting too much. But if obviously the people on the podcast can't see, but I just kept going because it was so well written. So I'm going to read what I wrote or what I highlighted because it was that good. And uh, we'll see if we can add anything to this particular pocket of the discussion. So, quote, there was no wiggle room, no flimsy excuse that could be summoned to justify what happened to Floyd. They couldn't blame a hoodie as they did when black teen Trayvon Martin was killed by another self-appointed vigilante, George Zimmerman, as Martin walked home from the store in Zimmerman's father's neighborhood. They couldn't blame police incompetence as they did with Taylor. They couldn't say Floyd was being too combative and aggressive as they did with Sandra Bland. This time, white people had to sit in their own shit. Black people, meanwhile, had run out of fucks. We were tired of pacifying white people, tired of being the, the ones both bearing the brunt of racial oppression and being tasked to problem solve the systemic injustice we didn't create. And just in general, we were tired of centering white people's feelings in every <clears throat> conversation about race. I'm going to run that one back. We were tired of centering white people's feelings in every conversation about race. These emotions spilled over into corporate America and into ESPN. In July, as the protests and pointed racial conversations continued, the New York Times published a piece on ESPN's Black employees who were speaking out about the company's racial issues. I was quoted in the piece, and I mentioned how often Amina had been bypassed for promotions. The article pointed out that both Amina and Lee Fitting, a white man, 
became coordinating producers in 2008, but since then, Fitting had been promoted several times and now held the powerful position of being in charge of NFL and college football coverage. Amina hadn't been promoted once during that same time span, despite working on some of ESPN's most high-profile shows. Amina left ESPN in 2021. The issues at ESPN that were suddenly being brought into the public consciousness existed when I was there, and some of them I had personally experienced. There were noticeable differences in the way black and white on-air talent were treated and perceived at the company. Certain producers and higher-ups had regarded Mike and me as difficult because we had high standards and were hands-on when it came to our work. We weren't afraid to push for what we deserved. Plenty of our white counterparts did the same, but they were usually praised for their commitment and passion. And no matter how difficult they were, it wasn't being held against them, and they still received plush assignments and positioning, end quote. So that was a longer uh, passage. However, it goes into, uh, it, it, it segues from uh, the current events that were happening during her time at ESPN into how she's continuing to see this trickle-down effect. And I do like how she wrote or started off this section of the book because she she talks about how people were like making sure that she wasn't going to let ESPN change her. And then as this section of the book goes on, you just see that pressure continuing to get turned up, um, especially as the political and uh, social climate started to head in that direction. Um, so what are y'all's thoughts on that? Um when she was talking about it and as i read that passage i was kind of like transported back to that time where all of that was happening and i just remember being in the worst job i've ever had um and how no one really spoke about what was going on it was like during the thick of COVID when we were all like, especially with George Floyd, um, we were all like locked in our homes, couldn't really leave. Everybody was working from home. And I just remember feeling so angry and like so helpless because you felt like there were so many, not only deaths from COVID, but so many meaningless, unarmed, you know, Black people dying at the hands of police or, you know, other self-appointed vigilantes. and it was like every time I would get on the call, we all had to give like project updates. And I'm like, this doesn't even matter. Do you guys see what is happening out here? Nobody gives a fuck about this food that, you know, we're not even serving for people. That was my job at the time, but we're not even serving right now because nobody's at work. Why can't we just have time to heal or actually be frank about what we're feeling instead of, you know, Black people having to conceal our heaviness behind Zoom or push these feelings down with no place to go. And I feel like she just really spoke to a lot of the feelings that I was I can definitely relate to what Whitney just said. Um, I think for me, I was still going to work every day in the pandemic only because like, I couldn't really do my job. My mom had to go shoot stories, edit stories, all that kind of stuff. So um, I remember we had to cover some of the protests after George Floyd and the station would pick and choose black folks to send out there only because they knew that 
our counterparts couldn't go in there and get this accurate story. But it's like they were willing to use us as like a sacrifice, knowing that they still underpay us. They don't treat us well. We had a whole bunch of like toxic energy at the station. And it's like you don't have a place to voice these concerns because even now, if it's too many what they assume people of color in one spot talking, they get nervous and they send out these memos like, oh, you guys can't be away from your desk. It's talking, doing this. It looks unproductive. You have to do something. And it's just kind of like you can't necessarily police that completely because we're still going to talk. We know each other outside of work. We're going to still send messages and it's just making it a more toxic environment. So, so many people keep leaving and you're going to keep having this problem. But it was so many things that were going on in the country. And at that time during the pandemic, for a long time, the sports were stopped. I mean, nobody knew how to do it safely without people getting sick. So you would think that when it did come back and you had like the NBA, the NFL and the WNBA taking stances like, hey, Black Lives Matter. And then you had like the owners upset, like um, the Cowboys owner, Jerry Jones, especially being upset, like threatening to kick players off the team if you took a knee where it's basically slave labor that you're paying these men. Like, yeah, they get a lot of money, but they're making you all of this money. Most of the NFL is black. You can't get around that. Most of the NBA is black. The people at the top are white. They don't care about us. It's just a way for them to make money. But everybody was like, boycott the NFL. But I'm like, this is an opportunity for these young men to make a lot of money. So I don't want to have to boycott the NFL as a whole. I want them to be held accountable to realize that you wouldn't be in this position if it weren't for these young men putting their safety on the line every week for you for a game. I read it twice when I read the quote, but I'm going to read it one more time because I remember the main thing during that. Because we talk about, like, Whitney is sure the example of, like, we're in these staff meetings and people are talking about, like, okay, so what are our productivity numbers or what is what are we doing, such and such, right? And no one no one wanted to, or no one gave the space to talk about what, what everyone was thinking. And it's like, this shit doesn't matter what we're doing in these staff meetings right now. There are real lives going on. There is real hurt. There is real this is a moment that we could slow down and be real human beings and, you know, heal collectively. And people are just pretending that there's not an issue. Um, But for me, uh, she said, we were tired of centering white people's feelings in every conversation about race. Uh, I got into it. Apparently that's my thing. Now I get into debates with people and speak my mind, but Kind of along the lines of like the respectability politics, but, um, you know, uh, saying like, basically, we have to meet people where they're at. And it starts with individual conversations. It starts with basically people of color putting themselves into spaces with, uh, you know, white people and stuff like that. And the, the particular person basically said, we basically have to do the work of getting white people to be on our side and uh the way that jamel put this is we're tired of being the ones who have to educate on the systems that we did not create also to educate and you know protest and things like that on systems that we didn't create that are oppressing killing hurting us and then also have to convince other people who are not marginalized to give a fuck 
It's like we're having to do the advertising, we're having to do the work, we're having to set up the tables, we're having to do everything, which, yes, we could potentially be the beneficiaries of it, but it's almost like we're out here just like waving our hands and uh, trying to attract people to pay attention to something that they don't have to give a fuck about because it doesn't affect them. And in fact, in many cases, systemic oppression uh, benefits those who uh, uh, with privilege, right? So there's really no incentive to get on board because you have to give up something. And I think that collective exhaustion is why I'm personally very like, uh, if someone gets on to, and, and it's usually, uh, unfortunately, uh, a person of color who will get on like their soapbox about respectability, like, ah, oh, well, these kids, you know, they don't pull their pants up or they're lazy or they're this and that. And I'm like, you act like an education or uh, talking a certain way or making a certain amount of money or dressing a certain way doesn't make us any less vulnerable to getting shot in the fucking head. And that's what I'm really tired of. I'm tired of this false belief that if we could just play along, if we could just fit in, that it's going to change things. The only, the, I think I'm not trying not to get too worked up here, but how many decades of marching and protesting and saying this isn't right? How many generations do we need to go to through to keep having, I feel like we keep coming back to fucking square one where we have to be like, oh, America's got a problem. America. America has a problem. God, that's a vibe. Anyway, distracted. But America does have a problem. And uh, I feel like we come back to, it's almost like square one and it's like, after a couple of months, after a couple of protests, these bitches get amnesia. And I feel like we're starting over again. Am I am I crazy? Am I tripping? Or is that something that other people share? I, there, there are two separate issues. Um, but I feel that way, not cynical, but I feel that way sometimes about when a school shooting happens. Uh, you just get so mad in the moment and it's just like are you guys not paying attention like these poor little babies and their teachers and administrators that go to school you know to teach them and protect them they're out here getting slaughtered like wake up america has a problem do something about this and you know everyone sends like thoughts and prayers but it's that's not good enough. When when is somebody going to do something about that? And you know you get tired of it, and then it kind of blows over as much as it can, and it's all kind of on to the the next story. And then it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again. And I feel the same way. You know, whenever an unarmed black woman, child, father, son, daughter, whatever, whomever. Is, is killed for nothing, and then the cops get off. They go and get hired somewhere else in another police force, like the person, one of the people that shot Breonna Taylor did earlier this week. And it's just like, once again, America has a problem. I think, I think both of you made very valid points. Um, 
And I think a lot of what we're seeing now too, and this might be a little decisive, is that um, white people are starting to look and realize that they're no longer going to be the majority soon. So what happens when all the minority populations end up being the majority? So I think a lot of this retaliation that we're seeing, a lot of these like extreme right organizations are so good at recruiting because they're pushing fear. I mean, how long can you keep doing these things to people for so long and nothing happens? It's like, how many times do you want people to peacefully march and nothing happens? And we all know, had this been January 6th and it was a group of Hispanic and Black folks, we would have been killed, maced, tear gassed, beaten, clubbed, anything you could imagine. So the fact that these people were able to go up there and then you have people that just kind of want to look the other way, that's like, oh, it's not about race. You know, this was a stage. You have all these theories that nobody on that side wants to take responsibility for it. But we all know, had that been opposite colors out there, it would have been horrible. So it, it's so frustrating telling especially younger people. If I'm talking to somebody that's like 20, like, I don't think it's going to get better, particularly in our lifetime. Maybe we'll see some minor improvements, but I don't know what to tell you. And that kind of is frustrating when it comes down to it. Yeah, as I went through this section of the book, I think I started off with, okay, yeah, I got some good feedback from the last episode. And I love that Jamel did this book. As much as we can criticize that it's uh, an incomplete thing, which, again, also the equalizer is that, like, if we, either any of us tried to write a book, it would be, it would be incomplete. It would not be, because it's a, it's a, it's a fixed thing. It's not, uh, it's not always evergreen. It's not always the end, end all, like, unless you're writing a memoir at the very end of your life. So it's always a snapshot in time, right? But as I read through it, I, I read it as a person who's living in a particular day, time, environment. And I think almost like I think Whitney, you had said as you were reading certain parts, it was like you were reliving those those eras, those times where it was like, wow, just 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 kill them and nothing happens to you. If it happens enough, kind of like we talked about how people are getting jaded on school shootings. If someone who looks like you is killed and the person has no consequences, like literally we talked about it last time, but like there are people still using the stand your ground thing and it's like a very loose interpretation of it right there was something that nita said it's getting to a point where white people won't be the majority anymore the things i've seen written on the internet by racist people and i truly do not go into comments like that but there are people who really and i live in Colonial Heights, um, aka Colonial Whites, which is right next to Petersburg, which is south of Richmond. It's so fucking backwards here. Like, I can't even. Um, the only reason I live here is because the price I got for my house was just way less than I would have gotten in Richmond proper. But we digress. Anyway, there are so many people who they truly fear that their the white supremacy will not be supreme anymore. Like it's a true genuine fear. It's the very same people who get really riled up about their gun rights and stuff like that. Um, and then I've seen things on the internet where people are like, uh, you know, you've, you've heard ignorant, like, uh, you know, right wing people who say like, 
ah, it's going to be illegal to be white or something as woke as everything is getting and stuff like that. Like the literal, like just ignorance and the, and you know, I try to protect my energy on like, I don't really go back and forth with people on the internet or anything, but as a person just living as a person who, you know, I said earlier, I, despite having the check boxes on respectability, it, it, it's emotionally and psychologically smothering to just exist in a world where, and Jamel talks about this, how Trump's presidency made it to where bigotry was safe again. I miss the days when white people were afraid to say the N-word because they knew they would get their ass beat. I would love it if white people were afraid to speak that word again. Uh, because at least there was some respect towards my existence. Now it is so widespread because the the cork has been taken off of bigotry um, and it's overflowing and it'll be hard to get it back into the bottle. But those sorts of things of like, are, you know, uh, it's not going to be okay to be white anymore or, you know... Um, Black and brown people are going to be the majority and all of this, like the the dumb things that people say on the internet, it truly like, when I say psychologically and emotionally smothering, like, I think physically too, like literally as I'm even saying this, my entire stomach and like ass cheeks are just clenched, just thinking about it. It truly is unhealthy. And it would be one thing to be like, oh, think positive. Don't worry about that. Self-care, you know be grateful, gratitude, all of this stuff. Yeah, I'd say those things to people as a therapist and stuff. And yeah, we should try to engage with those things and stuff like that. However, when the environment around you and the systems around you are literally setting up and being primed to kill you, and also the grounds that we walk on were never meant for me to not be chained to something, it's really hard to wholeheartedly uh, subscribe to that. So, oh, what a great segue. See, I thought I went off track, but the next thing in my highlights, it goes right along with what I just said. So look at God. In the margin, I wrote in pencil, more racism. Quote, the preposterous but popular narrative that ESPN had become too liberal and political. The right-wing media essentially labeled Mike and me as a tool of the radical left. Let them tell it ESPN was forcing two unapologetically Black hosts onto mostly white viewers in an effort to push the company's so-called liberal agenda. Sorry, we weren't in the 6 p.m. slot because we had we had earned our way there. We were just some charity case, as if corporate white America was in the business of giving undeserving Black folks high-profile positions and paying them a lot of money just for the fuck of it. And so then she goes on to say, uh, because in the middle of all of these, you know, accusations about ESPN uh, having, you know, racial issues and stuff like that, they start laying a lot of people off. And so Jamel is talking about that uh, era. Um, and she she shares, quote, we felt awful for our colleagues and made the decision to address the layoffs on the show without, of course, mentioning how it had sparked criticism of us. Uh, behind the scenes, we had to fight to discuss it. Uh, ESPN didn't want to draw any more attention to staff layoffs, but we wanted to be real with our viewers and not treat them like they were stupid. We believed it was our responsibility to acknowledge the work of our colleagues and wish them well. It was supposed to be a brief conversation, maybe two or three minutes, but that's not what happened. 
when we started discussing layoffs on air. We talked uh, we talked for about 15 minutes. Once we started, the honesty and emotion just started to pour out of us. And then later on, she says, of course, there were things that Mike and I could have done better. And I don't blame racism as the sole reason our show went through dark times and eventually didn't survive. But racism was certainly a bubbling undercurrent. The complaints that our show was too political and liberal was coded bullshit, end quote. So that's snippets from a, a large section of the book. Give your thoughts on that. I just think it's very interesting kind of watching like the people they put in place to represent different segments of ESPN. And you would think that they expect everybody to have this great sports knowledge, and it's not true. If you are what they deem an attractive young white male or attractive young white female, you're going to take precedence over everybody, even if they have to have the research team feed you facts all day because they do that as well. So you'll have some young kid sitting at a computer looking up quotes and stuff for you to put out there. A lot of them are not even like writing their own stuff. They're going by what people are feeding them just because they have a certain look. And I think that's completely insane. Like, I get it. They feel like men want to watch attractive people give sports updates and all this other stuff. Fine. But it's also like, until you're willing to have these conversations about that's what it is, you can't allow people to tell you you're being too liberal. And I think the fact that they weren't able to stand up to that is crazy. But you also got to look at the fact that they're owned by Disney. So they have this thing where, you know, they don't want to rock the boat, so to speak, because they want people to still go to their parks, buy their merchandise and all this other stuff. But if you're not willing to stand up for what is equal and fair, like why would anybody want to continue to support you unless you're talking about like your Trumps? Who cares who Trump support? Because I'm probably not supporting the same people. Uh, in this section of the book, she she shared a quote from an essay. I always have a hard time pronouncing the name, so I'm going to try my best. Um, but quote, soon after Charlottesville, the brilliant author Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote an incredible essay on Trump in the Atlantic titled The First White President, which summed up everything I felt about Trump and what his election said about this nation's lingering hatred of Black people. Barack Obama delivered to Black people the message that if they work twice as hard as white people, anything is possible. ta wrote, but Trump's counter is persuasive. Work half as hard as Black people and even more as possible. End quote. So for me, that, I read it several times. Um, I'd never seen the essay. Uh, I do need to go find it. But those words, I think it is a interesting share that she gave in uh, this memoir, because we've been saying the whole time that we were taught you have to work twice as hard to get a fraction. But I've never seen it flip the other way, where if you're of a privileged population, you can work half as hard and see exponentially more for so much less effort interested if y'all had any thoughts on that I mean, it definitely sounds like it could be pretty accurate but how many of them would be willing to admit that if you tell them that hey i've come from you know being poor to where i'm at now they'll be like oh i struggled too even though my parents were millionaires it's not the same thing like when you never have to worry about 
finances as a kid, that's a privilege. Whereas when you grow up in a household that has some financial issues, you have to constantly be thinking about that kind of stuff. You have to worry about sometimes is mom or dad going to jail? Are they going to be high when they come home? Some of these kids don't have to worry about that. And some of them, they they have some issues. I'm not going to take that away from anybody, but they're unable to see that some people have to work so much harder because they feel like their problem of maybe not getting the car they want is actually a big deal compared to like some kids are not eating every day. They don't know how to take an ingest of like not all problems are equal. At the close of this book, I mentioned earlier that this book ends abruptly. If you read the description of the book, you know she eventually left ESPN. It's not really a spoiler to anybody. But how it went down, we get a little bit. So in the beginning, we get like a, a snapshot of what happened. But in the end, we we do get uh, the, the fuller version of it, I think. So I want to share just three more highlights that I had. And then we can kind of talk about our takeaways from this book, because I do want to get back to her mom on one more thing, too, especially how she responded to this particular, you know, her departure from ESPN. So, quote, uh, one of her bosses is in a meeting with her, basically yelling at her because of her tweets and then how it feels like any. And I'm going to preface this by saying social media policy or not, Jamel and uh, her partner got in trouble because they dared to be human and to, like we've been saying, America has a problem, to dare to expose that. But you're going up against corporate America, which says, play nice and don't embarrass us, right? And so you're dealing with, do I do what's right? Do I stand up for what I believe? Do I use my platform to make a change? Or do I fall back because I could potentially lose my livelihood? It's a very fucked up position to have a person be in. Uh, It's kind of like some of us have been in situations or have grown up in circumstances where it's the difference between paying the light bill or buying groceries. That's fucked up that a person should have to be in that position in a first world country, right? But it's also fucked up to have to choose literally between am I going to use my influence and privilege to make a difference for those who don't have what I have or could all of what I have be taken away from me? It's like, you've made it here, but if you use it to better other people, we might knock you down a few pegs. It's a really fucked up situation to get into. So I give that as the preface before sharing this part. So her boss is yelling at her, quote, if I suspend you, people are going to think I'm a goddamn racist, he said, exacerbated exasperated i'm not sure what he wanted me to say i wasn't going to feel bad that people had my back especially when i tried to warn them and by them espn that putting out that statement would rally all the people who agreed with what i said about trump she went on to say as i tried to explain that i never intended for those tweets to balloon into a national controversy tears started to stream down my cheeks i wasn't having a breakdown but a moment. I explained what it felt like being a Black woman at this time in our country's history. It wasn't just about Trump and the talk racial climate he'd exacerbated. It was everything from the scrutiny, misogyny, and racism to feeling like you're never good enough, feeling you're too much, feeling like you're nothing at all. 
I was mentally exhausted. Professionally, I felt like I was drowning and I was so tired of coming to work every day and fighting to be heard. So I'm going to stop there and then I'll share the closure of her time at ESPN. It goes without, I mean, I don't even have to ask, but we've all felt this way. Anything to add? I was just going to say, going back to last month where we did the book that had a lot more of the, uh, I guess, clinical definitions of what happened. And it it goes back to what we're talking about. We carry in our DNA so much stuff that we've been through as a people, and it doesn't necessarily ease up because we are in much better position financially in the workforce, things of that nature. I just think you learn to adapt to handling it in a different way because we're still going through it and we have to be in positions to make room for the ones that are going to come after us. We can't go in there and be too pro-black because then we no longer welcome the door gets shut. So we have to find that safety net of speaking up enough to make some type of change, but not twisting them enough where they feel uncomfortable where none of us are allowed in the the boardroom anymore. I just feel like there's such a, especially as a, black person and a black woman there's such a line that you constantly like have to toe at work and corporate spaces all the time and like they said you have to kind of play scenarios out your head before speaking out and try to anticipate how it's going to come across as much as you can before sharing your opinion because if you say the wrong thing or if you're too pro-black or if you're too opinionated that can really backfire on you which is not fair because others can kind of say what they want, cry, stomp their feet, throw staplers across the room, um, and, you know, go and not have any sort of repercussions, but we can. They'll get a raise, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. They'll get a raise. They'll get bonuses. But while, you know, we try doing any of those things, and our black asses are on the street. So it's just. It's just mind-boggling sometimes. And then not to mention the amount of code switching that you have to do or just muting yourself, even though a lot of organizations push bringing your full authentic self to work, which you really can't do if, you know, you're in a certain position or you have a certain title or you have a, image to maintain and it's it's just really quite exhausting and I found I found myself thinking that as I was reading this book and really saying wow this is a shared experience for black people and black women when it comes um to work so the last quote I have is like basically before the last page of the book but quote I came to ESPN at 30 years old While I was still figuring out who I was professionally, even then I knew exactly who I was as a person, what I stood for, and what I wouldn't tolerate. I grew, but I didn't change. I made mistakes, but I left ESPN without regrets. End quote. And I thought that was a good line because the beginning of the section, she was basically being told by people when she got the job, she's like, are you sure they're not going to change you? Are you sure they're going to let you be you? Um, And she was able to look back on the experience and say, I didn't let them change me. She said, yeah, I made mistakes, but I have no regrets. But seeing that there's opportunity for change and uh, rebellion and revolution, 
within all of the different walks of life that we have um, and seeing how someone can push the envelope there and, and try to make change. Like some would say that something like sports is like frivolous, right? But Nita had shared last time that sports are a great equalizer. But at the same time, those with power and privilege would say, just shut up and dribble. Um, other people are like, no, actually, a lot of people pay attention to this. Y'all wouldn't have these fucking sports if it wasn't for black people because, and but just look at the makeup of, like you said, the NFL and the NBA, right? There's talent, there's things that we can do. And when we do have those platforms and opportunities, if we want to use something that other people would probably say is like frivolous or a pastime or something to make a difference in the every day-to-day lives of the people who are watching those very like basketball, football games and stuff like that, the little kids who are looking up to these people who are saying like, I want to be a football player when I grow up or whatever, but also seeing somebody who's also black, also seeing somebody who looks like them also do something bigger to advocate for them. People come up against a lot of, you know, pushback. Um, and so I really enjoyed seeing and hearing the stories about how she used her platform and her opportunities to try to make a change and to uh, try to speak her mind and to be authentic while doing it. But it's a good message for all of us in our spheres of influence to try to, to, of course, be good human beings, but also to try to make changes where we where we can. But I say all of that on the back end of saying, I repeated that one quote, like three different times, how we're just tired of having to educate everybody. It's also make change, but also remember, it's not only up to you to make change, especially if those who are privileged have way more power to make change way faster than the people who are marginalized in the first place. So that was my kind of takeaway from the end of the book, but also just kind of the, because the, the end section of the book was kind of heavy too, but it was, it, at least for me, um, it put me in kind of a headspace of, it's an uphill battle. Which literally just got that. Literally, it just hit me that the fucking book is called Uphill. And I just said that. Like, it, I, I'm, I shit you not. That just hit my brain. And I'm like, whoa, how creative using your last name and saying Uphill. What a great conclusion, right? Uh, it's literally an uphill battle because it feels very incredibly daunting. And, I wish, you know, I, I've said this in other book clubs before. I was like, I wish I had a happy little ending that was like, oh, and we all lived happily ever after. And here's our 10 steps to, you know, end racism and, you know, live in harmony and everything is equal and equitable. But this book didn't do that. No book can do that. No person can do that. We just have to keep trying. So what are y'all's thoughts as we kind of do our sign off from this book? So I do highly suggest watching the Red Table Talk if you're looking for some mental health elements to it because there was tons of good things in there that they didn't really get to in the book. Also, she also, I guess, no need to say it twice, she also has a um, podcast that she does on her own called Unbothered. So if you have a celebrity that you're really a big fan of, it's chances are she's done a podcast with them. So it's worth checking out. It's pretty good, pretty enlightening, but think it was a good book overall yeah i agree i think it was a really good book overall and i'm starting to like memoirs memoirs more and more 
So this is, I think, one of the better ones I've read. Well, I definitely appreciate y'all for participating in this with me. I really got a lot out of this one. Uh, Overall, I would definitely recommend this book. Uh, There's a lot of good content in here and a lot of lessons and just, you know, she's a strong Black woman who, um, you know, holds her own and is not afraid to speak her mind. And she's, she's a good example of how we don't have to let the outside world tell us that we need to shrink ourselves or to quiet down or to behave, that we can create spaces for ourselves and that we deserve to be here just as much as anybody else. So I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, if you're listening to this episode, May's Mental Health Book Club is going to be on a memoir by uh, Prince Shakur, I think is how the last name is pronounced. Uh, It is a book called uh, When They Tell You to Be Good. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting into that one. Uh, So if you're listening, come back next week for the first uh, episode of uh, that book club. Uh, But until next time, thank you all for listening and take care. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.